0: Right there's a book that I will not mention that says if you want to find great stories go do crazy things and you'll find great stories and I think that's the stupidest piece of advice you can give someone what it's really saying is your life isn't interesting enough already go make it more interesting I believe everyone's life is intensely interesting I think the problem is is that we just walk by moments without asking ourselves what it meant I was playing golf with a friend a couple of summers ago his name's Steve it was 100 degrees I left my Gatorade in the car. We're climbing up this hill on the sixth hole and he sees that I'm dying. And he turns around and goes, Matt, I have an extra Gatorade, do you want it? And I said, no, even though I wanted the Gatorade and he had an extra one. Mm -hmm. And that's weird. So we finish the round of golf. I get in the car. Steve drives away, but I don't drive away because I'm a storyteller. I'm interested in my life. I'm curious, I say to myself in the car, why didn't you take that Gatorade? Most people don't ask the question, they drive home. We do things all the time for reasons that we don't understand, and we don't explore the reason why. We just move on. And so I sit in the car and say, why didn't you take the Gatorade? And it takes me a minute and then I suddenly understand. When I was a kid, I was hungry all the time because we didn't have enough food to eat. So as a kid, I learned that when someone offer you food, you always say no. Because if you say yes, you're telling them you're hungry. And hungry children never want to admit that they're hungry because that's shame. So I would rather be hungry than ashamed of being hungry as a kid. And so suddenly as a 44-year-old guy, I discover I'm still doing the same thing. I'm 44, I have plenty of food now. My friend offered me a Gatorade, but I'm still an eight-year-old boy who has trained himself to say no to every offer of food. And I suddenly recognize in my life, I do this all the time. Like my friends are constantly like, hey, do you want my candy bar? Hey, do you want a granola bar? And I just say no, even when the answer should be yes. So sitting in the car underneath that tree at that golf course, I suddenly understand I have been living this pattern all of my life. You can see that that's a story. It's a story that maybe I'll tell on a stage someday, but I just told it to myself in the car and I suddenly understand myself in a way I did not understand myself before. A really profound, important understanding of how I live. Most people don't take the moment to think about it. We just do stuff for reasons that are real and poignant and important to understand, but we don't pause and say, why do I do the things that I do?
1: Hello PKMers, welcome back to Personal Knowledge Management with Aiden Palfon, a podcast where I interview fellow PKMers and dive into the unique ways to use their PKM systems for work, creativity, and life. We talked about why to tell stories, how to find stories, how to organize and develop stories in your personal knowledge management system, how to make time for stories, and finally, how to tell better stories. This week we have Matthew Dix, an internationally best-selling author, columnist, blogger, podcaster, playwright, and elementary sculptor. A 53-time Moth Story Slam champion and 7-time Moth Grand Slam champion, Matthew teaches storytelling and public speaking to individuals, corporations, universities, entrepreneurs, religious institutions, and school districts across the world. Matthew, summed up, why do you think finding and telling stories is so valuable?
0: (laughs) Well, there's a million reasons. I was just speaking to a business person, and the goal was to help him tell a better story so that he could essentially sell more of his product. But in figuring out what story to tell and talking about his life, we ended up spending the entire hour talking about how exploring his life and finding these stories is changing the way he sees himself and the way he sees, you know, his his occupation in the world, the way he operates in the world. And so rather than talking about business for the last hour that I had with him, we ended up talking about his life and how storytelling and being curious about your life can really improve the quality of your life and the way you interact with people. So, you know, you can certainly sell more things and connect to people better and relate to people better and get people to believe in you. But I always think that the the most important audience for every story you tell is yourself that you're the first audience and if you actually speak it out loud you actually get to hear it which i has profound impacts in the brain and so I think the first reason we tell stories is to understand ourselves better, which allows people who are afraid to tell stories, you know, people who are shy about getting on stage or don't want to tell stories about themselves to others. There's no excuse to not be telling stories to yourself about yourself. That is a really valuable thing to do. Mm. You know, it was so interesting with
1: that answer as well as you told it in a story, which I think made it that much more uh, enjoyable to hear. And I'd, I'd love to hear going off of that, how do you find the the stories that you think are valuable to tell to yourself or to others?
0: Well, I always say that if it means something to you, it'll mean something to someone else. I, I really struggle with a lot of people, a lot of people I work with, and especially, frankly, um, women, people of color, people from marginalized communities who feel like Nobody wants to hear what they have to say. You know, I'm a white straight American man. I walk into every room and assume everyone wants to hear everything I have to say, which is <laughs> but, but true because that's sort of how the world has been organized for a very long period of time. And so I spend a lot of time trying to convince everyone that if you have something that has happened to you, that means something to you, it will mean something to other people. So when you're looking for stories to tell, all you ever have to ask yourself is, did this mean something to me? Can I, is it one of those things that stays with me all the time? Am I dragging this stone around all my life? If you are, it's worth talking about. So finding stories is just finding things that mean something to you. You something that touches your heart and mind, and then believing in your heart and mind. That others will want to hear it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I think one of the the valuable things to talk about as well, off of not only just finding <laughs> stories, but also an ability to have a system where you store the stories you do find. And the reason I say that is, I was I was watching this net this Netflix series called The Playlist with my parents this last week, and I remember there was this one particular episode we were watching where one of the characters did something that reminded my mom of something that had happened in her own life and she was like oh what is that story what is it <laughs> she couldn't she couldn't actually remember what it was um and i think that's where like a system for storing the stories that you find and also the ones you're developing is so valuable so i'd love to hear uh, how do you store the stories you find and also develop them over time
0: Sure. You know there's lots of ways that I find stories. I have a multitude of activities I do with people, but the primary one, the most important one, is something I call homework for life. And that is a process I began for myself about 15 years ago. I was telling stories on stages and I was starting to run out of stories. I had a list, an initial list of stories to tell, and as I the list got smaller, I didn't want to become one of those storytellers who rolls out the same old chestnut every night, you know, those people like you go to Thanksgiving and your uncle tells the same story every single year. I didn't want to be that guy. So being an elementary school teacher, I'm inclined to think homework is always the answer. So I assigned myself this homework assignment, and now thousands of people all over the world uh, do it along with me. But essentially, it's just this. At the end of every day, I ask myself, if I had to tell a story about something that happened today, regardless of how boring the day was, what would that story be? The real prompt I give myself is this. If someone kidnapped my family, and they wouldn't give them back, until I told an entertaining story about something that happened over the course of this day, what would I choose? And then I write it down. I don't write the whole story down because that's crazy. Like that's more than most people ever want to do. And I believe in habits. I believe in simple, repeatable, short activities that change your life. So I use an Excel spreadsheet. It's two columns. It's very complicated. It's it's the, <laughs> date. it's the date on the left. And then I stretch the B column across the screen. And on that B column, I write down the story. And my goal was to find one new story per month, 12 new stories per year. I thought that would have been great. What happened instead is I discovered our lives are filled with stories. Things happen to us constantly. Things happen to us where people say something or we think something, we see something, we do something. Things that are genuinely worth talking about, sharing with other people. People and worth remembering. The problem is we don't do that. We just allow our memories to fall away like they're meaningless. And so like the worst game you can ever play is take your age, whatever it happens to be. Today, we'll subtract, let's say, nine. So I'm 50. Subtract nine, it's 41. And so whatever your age is, if you're listening to this, subtract nine, and then ask yourself, how much do you remember from that year, nine years ago? How many stories can you tell from, for me, my 41st year of life? A lot of people can't say anything about nine years ago. They'll struggle and eventually find a few things, but you go around the sun 365 days, a lot of things happened. And what happens is we just throw them all away. They're meaningless to us, or they seem to be meaningless to us when really they're the most precious things we have. So homework for life allows you to develop a lens so that when you have one of those moments, you hold on to them And the more you do that, the more you see them. And so what began for me was one item per day. I now average probably five or six items per day. Things that I write down that I think are worth remembering and possibly talking about. Now, I once did an analysis because someone said, how many of the things you write down actually become stories? About 10% is what turns out to be. But the others that don't end up being stories end up being precious moments that I want to hold on to. You know, my son says something hilarious. It's not going to be a story, but so many parents say things like, you're not going to believe what my kid said. I got to write that down. And then they don't. And then what happens is they're at their... Child's high school graduation, and they say time flew by. I can't believe how quickly she grew up. I'm here to report to you: time does not fly by quickly. The problem is, is we just discard time like it's meaningless. And if we actually take note of the moments along the way, time slows down for us. And so my children are 13 and 10, and they feel 13 and 10. It feels like 13 years and 10 years because I've been marking the days, day by day by day, and I haven't lost a day with them. And so homework for life will let you collect those stories, find those stories because the best storyteller is the one who has the most stories to tell
1: that was beautiful i and i think that one of the powerful things that you're getting on is just the the power that comes in just writing down like one to two sentences every day because nobody wants to write like a three-page story right when, when they're going to bed they, they can totally write one to two sentences though well I, that's
0: why i love that spreadsheet because it forces me to capture it in literally maybe four sentences i have to capture the moment and if it's a really big day maybe i'll use two or three cells to fill the one moment, but that's very rare. Most of the time, it'll fit in a single cell.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the questions I had off of that, because I've been doing this process ever since I heard about it from you a year and a half ago, is how do you know when it's the right time to to go back into your homework for lives and and figure out if they're real stories? Because I feel like sometimes you don't know something, how, how a story fits into the brighter picture until you get that, that period of time that goes by when you look
0: back at it. Right. So what I do is I do 100 entries on a sheet, and then I switch to a new sheet. So I'm on sheet like 73, which means I have 7,300 entries over the last 15 years. And so I do 100 which is not 100 days, because remember, I'm getting four or five a day. So I do 100 entries, I switch to a sheet, now I'm working on my next 100. Mm. When that 100 is done, I switch to another sheet, I'm working on my next 100. I try to get a couple hundred items away, and then I'll go back and go, all right, let me go look back at sheet 51 now that I'm on sheet 53. Uh. And that gives me the perspective. It also shows me patterns that I don't see all the time, which can become stories too. Uh, and a lot of times what happens is people judge their entries as being meaningless when oftentimes they're not, but we don't know it in the moment. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years ago, the only thing I had on a day, it was like a, a May a May evening, my neighbors to the left and the right came over to our house and we had a cookout on the back porch the first cookout of the summer, or the the coming summer. And that's all I had. I remember writing it down and going, God, this is a boring day. All I have is neighbors came over, we had a cookout. But that's what I put. That was the one thing that made that day different than every other day. A month later, the neighbors to my left, the house I'm looking at right now while I talk to you, they announced they were getting divorced. And we couldn't believe it. We thought they were perfectly happy together. They sat on the porch with us. They had dinner. They were laughing. We had no idea that there was discord in their marriage. That same week, the neighbors to our right the other couple on the porch announced they were getting divorced too. And so suddenly these two families, one family has a boy and a girl, little. The other family has three little boys. Suddenly these families are broken to the left and right of us. This shared backyard that we have, you know, these three houses, our kids play in the backyards. Suddenly it's kind of in peril. We're wondering what's going to happen. If I didn't record that May evening though, I probably don't have a story. But because I reflected and went, that's right, there was that night in May when we were all together and I thought everyone was happy. And it turns out there was only one happy couple on the porch, and it was me and my wife. And it becomes a story about how you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You never understand what's going on in a marriage unless you're in the marriage. And that becomes a great story. But it's not a story if I discard that night in May when we're having the cookout. If I say to myself, that's boring, I'm not going to write that down, I don't have the beginning of the story. And if I forget about that May cookout, I don't have a story at all. I just have two neighbors who got divorced instead of a pattern that I noticed over time. So we can't judge what we're writing down. We just write it down and we move on, assuming that some of this will be worth a story, some of this will be worth a memory, and some of this might be worth nothing someday, but that doesn't matter.
1: Mm. It sounds like that time component is so, so important because on the day-to-day, there's not much time for an entire story to go from beginning to end and it's really like the weeks and months and years where you start to to realize where those those stories fit in
0: yeah sometimes there is a story in a day and i always know when it is i'll come home and go honey i just did a terrible thing it's going to be a great story you know whenever <laughs> i am a terrible person i know i have a good story but a lot of the stories you're right they take time to develop you know A lot of times the stories we tell are not single day stories or single hour stories even. Sometimes they take place over the course of time. And if we don't capture the moments, we don't get to see the stories and we don't get to see the patterns in our lives that become stories and also help us understand the world in a different way. I understand now because of that story that you never know what's going on in a marriage and you should never make any assumptions, right? There was a a time when I noticed a pattern. I always would say that my wife and I have never argued. And we kind of never have. We've never raised our voices to each other. We almost never disagree. It's really kind of (laughs) disgusting. But I noticed in my homework for life that there was this moment at the beginning of the summer when Alicia, my wife, asked me to bring up the air conditioners. And she always asks on the hottest day of the year because that's when she wants them. Mm -hmm. And I hate it because every year the air conditioners get heavier somehow. And they're sort of like Reminders of my mortality. Apparently, I'm getting weaker and this is getting harder. And we live in a house without central air, and we always swore we would never do that, but we did. And so I always get angry. And so I say, I don't want to do it today. And she says, That's fine. I don't care. And then I'll do the chore anyway. I'll, I'll drag the air conditioners up, but I bang them against the wall on the way up to make a point, you know, to show her how annoyed I am. And then, like, you know, a month later, we're having friends come over and she wants me to mow the lawn. And again, it's the hottest day of the year. And she says, can you mow the lawn? And I say, I don't want to mow the lawn today. It's hot. And she goes, okay, no problem. And then I go outside and I mow the lawn, but I do it like aggressively. Like I'm running across the lawn, you know, like I'm mowing the lawn in an angry way. And I notice these patterns and I suddenly realize I do argue with my wife, but I don't argue with my voice. I argue by agreeing to doing things I don't want to do, but I do them in a jerky way. And I tell that as a story and married couples love that story because it's a story about how sometimes the disagreements and the arguments we have are not made with our voices, but by the things we do to, you know, quietly and subtly annoy our spouse. And so that becomes a story. But I didn't know I did that until I looked back on my homework for life and went, oh, look at that. I keep doing these chores I don't want to do, but I'm a jerk while I'm doing them. (laughs) Again, I understand myself in a way I didn't understand myself before through storytelling. But we have to record... If, you don't, if you're not curious, curious, curious enough about your life to look at it and examine it, then you're just going to end up 80 and wondering what just happened, which is what happens to most people. Most people end up at the end of their life wondering, where did the time go? And what did I do? Because we just throw it all away. Mm. I'm I'm really interested in hearing from that last story, which was fantastic. I, I know
1: that you said like, when you went through your homework for life, you found these little segments where you're like, oh, that's interesting. This keeps happening. So when in that click, when you saw that, how did you go from taking those homework for lives and then creating a story out of them? Did you like go to another document and start like crafting it? Like, I'd just love to hear about a little bit about that process.
0: Sure. Well, in my spreadsheet, what I do is I keep everything chronological, mm-hmm. but then I also copy and paste possible stories into a separate sheet. So I have this sheet of, I think it's up to like 723 stories waiting to be told. Things that I've decided are worth telling someday, I move them over to another sheet. But when it comes time to actually crafting a story, I don't write anything down. I've never written anything down that I speak on stage (laughs) ever, I don't think everything is oral for me. So I just start thinking about the story and I say, well, a story is about change over time. I used to think I didn't argue with my wife and we had a blissful marriage of you know, perfection. And then some stuff happened, which is I discover the way I do chores that I don't want to do. And I discover, oh, I guess we do argue. We're not as perfect as I thought, but it's not so bad either. And then I just start telling that story out loud Looking for the paths and the grooves and the ways to make that story work. And once I'm happy with it, I record it. And once I have a recording of it, I listen to it and I listen to where I get bored or I get confused or when I say things I don't need to say. And I revise it all orally until I'm happy with it. Then I make a recording and then it's sort of trapped in my brain for the rest of my life. Now that's me because I'm a very auditory person. I'm not a visual person. I'm also a writer. I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I've published six novels and two books of nonfiction. So I'm not opposed to writing at all. I write a blog post every single day for the last 21 years. So writing is a big part of my life. But when it comes to speaking out loud stories, things I'm going to say on stage, talks I'm going to give, I don't like to write anything down because once I write it down, it doesn't sound like me in the speaking version of me anymore. It sounds like me on the page rather than me on the stage. And because I can remember so well what I hear, but can remember nothing about what I see, um, I use that ability to remember what I hear to help me on stage.
1: Yeah. And it probably helps on stage as well, because if you forget a certain part of the story, because it's not like rigidly memorized, you can you can improvise and just tell it in slightly different way.
0: Yeah, I don't memorize anything and I don't support memorization on stage. Um, I say we remember our stories, but not memorize them. So if I was to tell a story twice in a row, you would discover that the sentences really are different. The story stays the same, but the order that I might say things in and the way I might say things are going to be different. Now, the more I tell a story, the more I'm going to find the perfect way to tell it. So I have a couple stories that I use in workshops all the time, for example. I've told those stories hundreds of times. They come out almost exactly the same every time. They've become memorized unintentionally. But most of the time, even if I'm going to deliver a talk, a one-hour talk, there's nothing memorized whatsoever. There is, I wanna talk about this, then I wanna talk about this. I might memorize a laugh line, a good transition. I'm gonna probably memorize the opening few sentences and maybe, the closing couple sentences, but you're right. I have complete flexibility on stage. So so quite often I'll be telling a story and I'll remember something that I hadn't remembered when I was planning the story and I can put it into the story while I'm telling it. My oh, wife wow. has actually accused me sometimes of, she said, did you hold that back to surprise me? And I said, wow. no, I thought of it on stage. It just came to me. But because I haven't memorized anything, I can be flexible enough to be improvising as I go along.
1: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And and when you're creating these these stories like that, one that you were talking about with your wife and how you' you do things physically while doing chores to to get back at each other. How did you find the the right anecdotes for like a story? Like if you were creating another story, would you literally go back into your past homework for lives and like search for something that might fit in there?
0: I might go through the homework for life, but usually what would happen is in that case, I just sort of asked myself, Let's find some other examples of this. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't hard. I like lists. I make lists of anecdotes to use in stories or lists of moments or lists of examples. One of the struggles people have is they always choose the first one or the funniest one. And in storytelling usually what happens is three is almost always the right number. So I want to provide three examples of ways that I do chores like a jerk, right? So I'm going to create a list of 10 and I'm not going to choose my three favorite. I'm going to choose the three that work the best together. So that means one might be a physical chore, one might be a mental chore, one might be a summertime chore, one might be a winter chore. I want variety, so that the story doesn't feel stale. And so I might leave one off that I really love because I'm looking for the right combination of three, not the best three, because the best three are often not the right combination of three, if that makes sense.
1: Mm, that makes total sense, yeah. So if like you had two two chore examples that were like hilarious, but they were both you using a vacuum cleaner, that wouldn't work well in a story because it's the exact same thing.
0: Right, and I probably don't want two hilarious examples either. Yeah. I probably want one hilarious example and one heartfelt example and one weird example those are probably the better combination that will make the story feel like it's constantly changing mm-hmm. and not sort of stale yeah you know one thing my brother and i have talked a lot regarding stories
1: especially after reading your book was i think there is um that we've noticed with a lot of our lives there are periods where we find we have so many stories to tell. Like they were just incredible places of just storytelling uh, awesomeness. And then there are periods where we'll be like, huh, you know, there's not much that that happened during that time. And I, I really would love to hear from you. How do you think people can live their life more intentionally in a way that makes it inherently more story worthy?
0: Well, I don't think they should change the way they live their life, right? There's a book, that I will not mention, that says, if you want to find great stories, go do crazy things, and you'll find great stories. And I think that's the stupidest piece of advice you can give someone. What it's really saying is your life isn't interesting enough already. Go make it more interesting. I believe everyone's life is intensely interesting. I think the problem is is that we just walk by moments without asking ourselves what it meant. So I was playing golf with a friend a couple of summers ago. His name's Steve. It was 100 degrees, I left my Gatorade in the car. We're climbing up this hill on the sixth hole and he sees that I'm dying. And he turns around and goes, Matt, I have an extra Gatorade. Do you want it? And I said, no, even though I wanted the Gatorade and he had an extra one. Mm -hmm. And that's weird. So we finish the round of golf. I get in the car. Steve drives away, but I don't drive away because I'm a storyteller. I'm interested in my life. I'm curious, I say to myself in the car, why didn't you take that Gatorade? Most people don't ask the question they drive home. We do things all the time for reasons that we don't understand and we don't explore the reason why. We just move on. And so I sit in the car and say, why didn't you take the Gatorade? And it takes me a minute and then I suddenly understand. When I was a kid, I was hungry all the time because we didn't have enough food to eat. So as a kid, I learned that when someone offer you food, you always say no. Because if you say yes, you're telling them you're hungry. And hungry children never want to admit that they're hungry, because that's shame. So I would rather be hungry than ashamed of being hungry as a kid. And so suddenly, as a 44-year-old guy, I discover I'm still doing the same thing. I'm 44. I have plenty of food now. My friend offered me a Gatorade, but I'm still an eight-year-old boy who has trained himself to say no to every offer of food. And I suddenly recognize in my life, I do this all the time. Like, my friends are constantly like, hey, do you want my candy bar? Hey, do you want a granola bar? And I just say no, even when the answer should be yes. So, sitting in the car, underneath that tree, at that golf course, I suddenly understand I have been living this pattern all of my life. You can see that that's a story. It's a story that maybe I'll tell on a stage someday, but I just told it to myself in the car, and I suddenly understand myself in a way I did not understand myself before. A really profound, important understanding of how I live. Most people don't take the moment to think about it. We just do stuff for reasons that are real and poignant and important to understand, but we don't pause and say, why do I do the things that I do? I always talk to flies, which is kind of crazy, but when there's a fly buzzing around my classroom, I'll I'll always say to the fly, I go, go live your life don't be here, go live your life. One day I said to myself, why do you talk to flies? That is a weird thing you do. And then I knew right away, I'm terrified of death. When I see a fly, I know it has three days to live. I see it as a sign of mortality. And when it's buzzing around my classroom, I'm thinking in my head, there's a big world, go experience it, because you're going to be dead in three days, which is essentially how I live my life every day, which is there's a big world and you can get hit by a bus tomorrow, Matt. So go live it the best you can. I suddenly understand that I talk to flies because I'm really talking to myself. I am telling myself, go live your life because it's going to be over before you know it. Again, if I don't pause and say, why are you talking to flies, man? I don't understand myself. So I don't think we have to change the way we live. I think the way we we have to do is change the way we look at our life and allow ourselves to be self-centered in a positive way. Meaning spend some time thinking just about you afford yourself the time to sit on the couch and go Nobody else matters right now. I'm just gonna think about me. How did I live my day? What decisions did I make and why did I make those decisions? And that's where we find stories Wow,
1: so it, it sounds like you don't have to to completely change your life to make it more story worthy It's already storyworthy. It's just bringing an awareness to what you do and questioning why that Unveils the stories you didn't know were there.
0: Yes. Yeah. In fact, the stories I like to tell the best are the small stories. You know, I'm a person who has died twice and been brought back to life by CPR two times. I've been arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit. I was homeless, the victim of a violent crime. And that's the tip of the iceberg of craziness that has been in my life. Mm. But if you ask me to tell a story right now, like, what's your favorite story to tell right now, Matt? It's probably a tiny little moment that I had with my son or a student or my wife. I won't tell you the story about the time I died or the other time I died. I was on trial for a crime I didn't commit. I haven't even told that story before. My storytelling friends are like, you're crazy. You've never told the story of the trial? And I say, well, I had a little moment with Charlie the other day. I'd rather tell that because those stories are oftentimes more connective to people. Because it's hard to connect to a trial. It's easy to connect to a story about a little boy who discovers something about the world that he didn't know a moment ago and changes the way I think about the world too. So you don't have to look for big things and you don't have to change your life. Your life is already story worthy. You just have to see it.
1: Mm, That makes so much sense, you know? A lot of the stories I've told, um, they are like a little bit more of what you were describing, like those epic moments. And then I realized like those aren't the stories that I seem to see people seem to resonate most with. In fact, one of the stories that people like most, uh, I was sitting in my kitchen doing a geometry test and like a very responsible high schooler, I had decided to study for it the morning of, <laughs> instead of the night before. So I was really, really studying. I knew I had to to study. Otherwise I wouldn't do well on the test. So my dad walks downstairs. He comes in, he says, good morning, Aiden. I don't even respond. I'm just studying my geometry. He goes over to the cat bowl where one of our cats Lola is. He starts talking to her in this little baby voice. He's like, Oh, little kitty. And as soon as I hear that, I'm like, dad, shut up. My God. And he just walks away into the other room. So I try to go back to my geometry test and I notice I can't, I can't focus. And I start remembering my dad's past. You see, he grew up in a family that they didn't talk to each other that much. And everyone in his family, all his siblings tried to catch their parents' attention in their own way. You know, one of my uncles decided to, to go into drugs and one of my aunts, she started doing really bad in school on purpose. My dad, he did really, really well in school, but he also fell into those to those drug habits. And I realized then and there that the, the reason, the reason he always, always made sure to say good morning to me when he came into the room was because he wanted wanted me to always know that no matter what there would be someone there to talk to talk to me which he didn't have when he was a son with his father and i went into the other room and i said good morning to my dad i've never missed another day since
0: yeah and that's a tiny little thing right and i can see how that would mean so much more to someone than some big crazy moment that you know happened in your life yeah yeah and i love it too because it takes it probably takes you 4 minutes to tell a moment that actually took 1 minute in your life to explain fully right? And it's a perfect example of the why do I do the things that I do, right? Why does my father do the things that he does? And now I have a story to tell.
1: Yeah, that's great. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear with with all of this, um, these stories that you make of these like little little moments, how do you find the, the time and the space to, to create these stories throughout your day?
0: Well, thankfully, because I don't write them down. I don't have to sit down and commit them to paper. So, mm-hmm. my storytelling sort of crafting takes place in the shower <laughs> while I'm driving a car, mm-hmm. while I'm riding my bike. Uh, I, you know, my dog has passed away, but my dog was an audience for many of my stories when I would take her for walks. So, I'm crafting my stories through the day. I'm really sort of picking through them when I have a moment and pausing when I get out of the shower and, you know, picking it back up when I'm in the car. Uh, I do a lot of thinking about the structure of the story. But once I start actually crafting, I believe in speaking out loud. I don't think anything you do in your head that you don't say out loud counts. We sound really good when we're not actually saying the words. When we're imagining saying the words, we sound brilliant. I also know that the way our the way our chemistry works, the way our biology works, our mind and our brain are very separate things. Our brain is constantly listening to what we say for signals. Like There's a lot of research that says, all you have to do is say, I'm happy, and your brain will release chemicals that will allow you to be happier that'll that'll you know it listens to what we say and then responds to what we say and so we can actually change our mood just by speaking about changing our mood the same thing happens in storytelling though if you tell a story out loud to yourself it has a fundamental and physical impact on you that does not happen if you say it to yourself without speaking it out loud mm-hmm. so saying our stories out loud to ourselves is important which is why the shower and the car And the bike ride is good because you can talk to yourself and people don't think you're crazy. You know, it's a little harder to do it. Like, can't work on my story while I'm having dinner with my friends because that's weird, you know, or... I was once in a bookstore, <laughs> just before a show, I was going to be performing in a bookstore and I was telling the story to myself like in the stacks and I saw the bookstore tweet and it said something like, if you see a storyteller, if you see someone wandering the stacks talking to themselves, they're probably just a storyteller for tonight's show. And I was like, oh damn, somebody heard me, like an employee heard me and tweeted about me talking to myself in the stacks. Um But because that's the way I do it, I'm always looking for places where I can sort of be alone and talking to myself. So that's basically how my my craft works. Mm. I think that's
1: that's so funny how you say, like, if if you just think about it in your head, like, (laughs) if if you listen to your thoughts, they're so jumbly. Like, it's one word, then this, and then suddenly you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner, and... Like you'll just go on this 20 minute tangent and realize, oh, I haven't been thinking about the story I wanted to make whatsoever.
0: Right, well, things like transitions are really hard in stories too, transitioning from one scene to another, finding the right words is really challenging. But in your head, it's not challenging because you can just skip over the words. You go, okay, I'm going to be in this moment and then I'm going to be over here. But there's connective tissue between those two moments that's required when you speak it out loud, but never required in your head. And so you just give yourself credit for things you don't deserve credit for when you're telling your story to yourself. You have to say it out loud. Mm -hmm.
1: One of the things that I've also struggled with when telling and developing these stories is how to know which story is right for this certain social occasion that i'm in um and also how to know how long of a story i can tell and the reason (laughs) i the reason i say that is oh god i remember a couple of days ago i was at a a vietnamese restaurant with some friends and the topic of like self-identity and figuring out what you're going to do with your life came up which is very typical when you're in college i remember as soon as as soon as that came up, I started telling this story uh, about this book that I'd read called Siddhartha. And I think the story I got so ahead of myself, the story was like eight minutes long. (laughs) And, And it just felt so out of place with everyone else's like, Couple of sentence remarks that the whole room just kind of like sulked in their seats, and they were like, "Oh my god! Like, why is this guy telling an eight-minute story?" So, how do you navigate that when when you're giving your stories?
0: Well, if you have a lot of stories to tell, the trick there is I try to be the last person to speak in every room that I enter. Um, For one reason, it's because I'm a straight white American man. I always have the chance to speak, so I'm trying to afford other people the opportunity but also it's strategic. The more I hear from people, the more likely I'm going to choose the right story to tell, right? So I'm just going to gather information from people, listen to what they say. If they're talking about something and I can tell a story that is in the same vein and the same theme and the same content, it's a signal to them that I'm listening to them. I'm listening to them. I understand them. And now I'm going to reflect back to them with a story of my own. That's meaningful to people. There's also, you know, once you get good at storytelling, you can take that eight minute story that you told the other day, and you know that there's a two minute version of it and a four minute version of it and an eight minute version of it. And so oftentimes when I'm in a situation like that, I'll either be matching the length of other people's stories by shortening or lengthening my story, Mm -hmm. or I can do tricks like I'll start telling a story and I'll monitor the attention of the audience, you know, whether it's four people at a party. And if I notice these people are not into this, I can just... I have tricks that allow me to get to the end of the story really quick or just cut it off. And just be like, that's enough already. I'll transition into a question and get someone else talking for a little bit. Maybe I'll come back to the story later. But um, there's always a shorter and a longer version of every story. And if you're just sort of cognizant of the attention of your audience, you can quickly adjust the length of those stories. And that can be really helpful too. Mm -hmm. But but don't speak. Just try to not speak until you absolutely have to. I went to an all-women's college. And so because I was the only man in every class, I quickly learned they did not want me talking first or second or third. Like all of these ladies went to an all women's college. And now there's one guy in the class, like what the hell, right? This defeated the whole purpose. And I knew that. So I learned in that school to not talk until everyone else had sort of had an opportunity to speak. And in doing that, I learned the value of gathering information before you speak. So when you do speak, you have something good to say something important, something that will mean something to the people around you.
1: Mm. So it sounds like just reading the room is so critical. And I think that that also helps you connect with the other person or people in the room so much more. Because what I find myself doing with telling stories a lot of the time is I try and uncover what it what it is like the core message um, to me of the story is and Sometimes the context of the story itself isn't technically related to what it is that we're talking about. Like maybe they're talking about a college classroom a lecture, a lecture that they had. But the overall theme of what we're talking about, the message that people are trying to get across is related to the message of the story that I want to tell. Sometimes I'll give that story anyways. And because they're related, uh, it ends up feeling very connected.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's probably, you know, the best kind of story to tell in response to that. You know, it's often not entertaining. If someone tells you a story about a crazy bike ride they had for you to tell your crazy bike ride, because that's repetition, you know, yeah. that's what five, fifth graders do in class all the time. I'll say, Oh, this thing happened to me. You know, I was playing with my dog and then a hand goes up. I was playing with my dog. Another hand goes up and I'm like, that's boring. But like if I was playing with my dog and it made me feel happy, tell me a story about something different that made you happy. And that's a better story to tell. So those kinds of those kinds of tricks are useful.
1: Yeah, a couple of days ago, I was standing with my mom and dad in the kitchen. And I was telling them that one of the things I was finding most difficult about being back at home during winter break instead of at college is I felt like the level of intellectual conversation was so much lower, because naturally, I was just around less college students. I was around my parents. And I remember they found that really hard to take because they felt like I was almost saying, I don't enjoy like talking to you. Um, Yeah. And that's, that's, that's not what I was trying to get across. What I was trying to say is it's not, it's not, um, it's not you. That's the problem. It's just me as a, a 19 year old. I'm like, I'm so crazy about learning. Like I want to, everything is new to me. I'm like a, like a kid almost. And I I wanted to hear from you, how do you think it is that you can make conversations which aren't intellectual, you know, not about like some novel that you all read, um, still meaningful or still like enjoyable, uh, without having it just be small talk about the weather.
0: Oh, well it's storytelling. I mean, if I was in the room with your parents and I wanted to have a good conversation, I would simply say something like, uh, mom and dad, tell me about the first time you met, like if you don't know that story, right? Or mom and dad, tell me about the first real argument you can remember having, Mm. right? Or dad, you've never told me about your first girlfriend or your first kiss, right? Or your first failing test. Like, I think that it's a tragedy sometimes that we live with people all our lives and we end up not knowing a lot about them. Mm -hmm. You know, my mom passed away in 2007. And what I understood when she passed away was a human being is essentially a hard drive filled with information. And you have a limited amount of time to extract that information. And when that person dies, essentially the hard drive is crashed. And every single story that they have not told you will never be told. So in the presence of your parents looking for something to say, I would be asking them every question under the sun about their life and allow them to tell you the stories that they haven't gotten around to tell you, either because they didn't think you'd be interested, or they haven't thought about them in a long time, right? Or they thought, you know, he doesn't want to hear this, you know? And instead, that's what I would be doing. I would be asking every possible question, thinking that my time with my parents is limited. Not only the length of their life but as a college student you don't have that much time with them now anyway like you have winter break and then you're off again and, and there will come a day when you will wonder you know i don't know um sort of my birth story my mother passed away before i ever heard about the day i was born like what that day was like for her and now that i've had children both of my children absolutely know what that day was like for the for me and my wife the day they were born that story is in the world, out of the hard drive, it's in their hard drive now. I don't have that from my mom, though, because never asked. And the number of questions that I did not ask my mother that I can never ask again, that the list grows every day. And so that's the way to have meaningful conversations that are not about, you know, the book that you read, or the mathematical equation that you solved. Because I think the more interesting stories are tell me about, tell me about the space shuttle, when the space shuttle blew up, right in 86, mom, where were you? And what was that like? Right? Um, 9-11 mom, you know, what was going on on 9-11 on your life? You know, th- the day of your marriage, mom, you know, tell us about the wedding. Those are the stories you want to get do that. Thank you for that. That 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 makes so much sense. And you know, now that you say that, it
1: reminds me of uh, just literally just yesterday, My dad was talking about at the dinner table um, when he one of his favorite activities to do is is going up to his tree stand and hunting. Yeah. When he's out there, like we don't really know what he's doing because we don't we don't go up with him. So I asked him, I was literally just straight up. Uh, like, p- what are you thinking about in the, in the tree stand? And he told me something which really surprised me. And that is he, he tends to, to ruminate and to think on all the, the things that he's done in his life, but then all the things that he's not been able to do as well. And that was really profound for me because for some reason I had this perception that when he was there, he was just kind of like mind blank, just looking <laughs> at the forest, not really thinking about anything else and it turns out that he he has this very um ruminative way of thinking uh and the fact that he's in nature while this is happening really helps him with that because he can he can enjoy the the soft breeze and like the birds flying around and the deer in front of him uh, and it can kind of it can help take him away from that ruminative side to him that he tends to have and that was all yeah. literally asking like what <laughs> what do you think about in the in the tree
0: right yeah they have a lot to say uh, people have a lot to say um and i i love asking those questions. I just you know, I, I just think we have to um we have to convince people that the stories they have to tell are worth telling. And oftentimes people don't believe that unless we ask them and then we don't say anything. We give them the space and and, and the nodding of the head and the smile and the follow-up questions, those are the things that'll get people talking. So yeah, that's what I would do. How do you think you can show people that they have stories in their life and they can tell stories they don't believe? so. Well, you can start just by, you know, most people will tell you a story one-on-one. You know, sometimes they'll say like, I don't know if this is really worth talking about. And I always go, it absolutely is. Tell me everything. But um Just having good questions, the right questions will draw stories out of people. So, you know, if I say, what was your first pet? You know, and they tell me the story of their first pet. And, you know, they say, my first pet was a dog named Joe. And I say, oh, what kind of dog was it? And they say, oh, it was a beagle. When did you get Joe? Oh, we got Joe for Christmas, actually. Really? For Christmas? How did your parents present Joe the beagle on Christmas? And suddenly I'm in the story of a Christmas morning and somehow parents presenting Joe the beagle, right, on Christmas morning. And as long as I'm asking questions, nodding, smiling, thanking them for telling me it, that's the signal to them that what you just did was worth my time. And then I'll follow it up with another one. Or I'll share my own. The time we brought the two cats home for the kids and how they refuse to wake up, right? And I'll tell her, I'll tell them that story. So they'll hear about my kids first cats, right? And, and that's a reflection back at them of a first with a pet. So just asking questions and responding with interest and with time, you know, and with follow up questions, I think all of that will tell people you have things to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just showing them that like, you're interested in what they are saying can teach them that the stories they do have are valuable.
0: Yeah, especially people, especially people who have been marginalized in their lives, who have been silenced in their lives. Those are the people that need it the most. So, you know, anyone who has had a hard time making space for themselves, I try to make as much space as I can for them and, um, and just be as encouraging as possible. Those are the stories we don't get. And I don't have a lot of my mother's stories because she didn't share a lot. Um, you know, she was depressed most of her life, did not share very much. And now she's gone. You know, and my father, I don't know my father. He left when I was seven. And I've been trying to reconnect with him all my life. And he's had a whole life that I have no knowledge of whatsoever. You know, and both of those people, for some reason, don't feel the need to share their lives with me or didn't think I was interested enough to hear from it. I can't access either of those people. They're like beyond me. But the person sitting in the plane next to me for the next eight hours, I'd love to hear that person's story. And so if they're that kind of a person that turns to me and says, hi, my name's Jane, I say hi. I'm Matt, and I can talk to that person for eight hours, um, all the way to California, and have a great time doing it and love it. And um, I can't tell you how many times I'll finish a flight with someone or. Or, you know, I'll, I'll be at a conference and I'll have a meal with someone who I don't know. And they'll be so happy at the end of the time we spend You know, they're like, that was great. You know, and it, what they're really saying is, you listened to me and shared something of yourself and expressed interest in my life. And that doesn't happen a lot in the world, I don't think. So when we can do that for other people, I think we become something important.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think especially as a 19 year old, I really resonate with that idea of listening to someone being one of the most beautiful things you can do. Because I remember one of one of the um, when I was in my first semester of college, I remember about a month in, I was sitting with a whole bunch of friends, pretty much my whole friend group that I would made in the first semester at one of the dining halls, And I was so excited. I was like, Yes, let's go like everyone's together again. This is great. We hadn't been together for for four weeks. it had been so long. And I was like thinking about the things I was going to ask them and like what we were going to talk about. So everyone sits there out and then one at a time they all go on their phone whether <laughs> yeah. it's going through instagram through tiktok through whatever and i tried to start a conversation i was like yo like uh you know how was your day or what did you what was some of the favorite things that you did this last week and i get like a, a couple of responses yeah and it never went further and i remember that moment was so painful because nobody nobody was listening
0: yeah yeah it's um it's not ideal you know um a simple policy of like putting the phone upside down on the table would be great. But I know that's not a, it's not a doable thing. It's, it's all over too. You know, I ask my students all the time, my fifth graders, I say, um, how often do you try to get your parents' attention, but they're staring at your their phone and every hand goes up. They're always like, Oh my God, I was talking to my father for five minutes. And then he didn't hear a word I said, cause he was staring at the phone the whole time. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, it's a unique opportunity, I think, for people who aren't trapped in that world, you know, I always think if I can find if I can find a space that other people can't occupy that increases my worth, you know. So if I'm a person who doesn't need to stare at his phone, and if I'm a person who can make eye contact and share a story and get people to talk and be a good listener, that increases my value. And I think that's important. I, I teach my my own children that all the time. I go, just look at all the stupid things people are doing and just don't do that. And you're gonna be better than everybody and your life's gonna be easier. And I really believe that. Like just If everyone's staring at their phone, be the one who isn't, you know. And if um, everyone's the one who's constantly talking, be the listener. And if no one's asking any questions, be the questioner. And um, you're just gonna you're gonna find yourself surrounded by people, and you're gonna be more appreciated as a result. Mm. Show the people that you care about what
1: they have to say, and they will tell you things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I had um uh, one of my former students as a high school senior. She came back to talk to my class recently, and um, she was talking about phones. Um, my kids don't have phones yet, my 13 and 10-year-old, and uh, and they're better for it. And they actually will tell you they're better for it. My high school senior, uh, she said that she was on social media until 11th grade, and she was basically unhappy until 11th grade. And on 11th grade, she canceled all her social media, and she uses her phone to text friends, find her way around and look for answers to questions. And that's the only thing. And she said, ever since that day, I've been a happier person. And she, she told my fifth grader, she said, I know you think you need it and I know you think you won't be able to avoid it. She said, but the sooner you can let it go, the happier you're gonna be. And I thought, her name's Ella. Her value has already increased substantially compared to all the people around her who are trapped in that world that she has managed to extract herself from. So if you can find the fortitude to extract yourself from the nonsense that's occupying so much of life these days and be that singular person, that Ella of the world, right? I just think it's gonna be a better life for you.
1: Yeah. You know, my parents didn't give me uh my brother or I a phone <laughs> until we were 16. Yeah. And I think that one of my uh one of the reasons I think that was so I'm so glad they did they didn't do that is once you have this this device, which in many ways is amazing because you you can you can set right. it up like Google. You can yeah. find the, the answer to something in like two seconds, but in a lot of ways, I noticed after I got the phone. You can tell me if you feel the same. That the world, I stopped coming to it with as much curiosity because it felt like all this knowledge was just at my fingertips. There wasn't like a, uh, there wasn't as much of a, a feeling of like exploration. Like, oh my God, what is there to find? You know. And I think that's how you find those stories: is you you explore. I remember that I was I was on a walk a couple of weeks ago at Corn- now. And I was going down this path that I've gone down a million times. Like I walk this way all the time. And I noticed that on my right, for some reason, I saw this trail, this Dryden trail is what it was called. Any other time I would have just zipped by and and ignored it, but for some reason, might have been the that that idea of finding stories and expo- exploration. I decided, you know, heck not Like I have a lot of time, why not just go down this path and see where it leads? So I, I went down the path. and It went for miles, like a whole like three, four mile trail that was gorgeous, like trees, birds, sunlight coming through. It was amazing. Literally been down this trail like hundreds of times, and just because I took that one veer, that one time, I discovered this trail and never would have if I did.
0: Yeah. Well, most people would probably have walked down that trail staring at their phone and never even noticed it. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's the difference between you want to engage with the world or you want to engage with the thing that's in your hand, you know? And so often, so often we think that's more important. I had a parent actually say to me just the other day, she said, "Your 13 year old, 10 year old don't have phones. Don't you think that's a safety issue? like if you need to get in touch with them. And I said, well, first of all, I didn't have a phone when I was a kid and it wasn't a safety issue. And also every single human being around my children has a phone. So- if they suddenly need a phone, there's always one within like nine feet of them, right? Every single kid and adult around them has a phone. So if they ever needed one, it's right there. But oddly, like this parent thinks like, yeah, but I have this my life thing on the phone so I can track the child. And I'm like, that's the, that sounds like the worst thing you could ever do to your child is strap them down digitally so that you can see them at all times. Like it's just we have to be present in the world. And um the world does not exist on a glass screen. The world is, you know, it's here and we have to be aware of it and we have to be listening and talking and doing all those things that we've talked about.
1: Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about how your kids have have told you um, or how they have said like not having phones for so long has changed them?
0: In a oh, well, a negative way? yeah, my daughter says she's 13. She's going to get one next year because she'll go to high school. And I, there's sort of like things in high school that actually require the phone. Like, I don't know, classes where they actually say take out your phone. So she's going to need it next year. But she said... I don't get involved in the drama. She said, I sit with my friends and I see them on their phone and they get upset because something's been said or a picture's been sent. And she said, I never have to get involved in that drama. It's really great. Now, they have iPads in our house that work on Wi-Fi, which allow them to text and call their friends inside the home only. So they, it's not like they're disconnected from their friends. They can have a FaceTime call with a friend on their iPad. They can text with a friend on their iPad, but only in the house. Like, once they're out in the world, they don't have any connection to anything. When they're at school, they don't have any phones. It's just, in this, it's essentially like a phone. An old-fashioned phone in a house is what they have, except it's on an iPad. But So my daughter says, um, no drama in her life, and that makes her happy. And my son says, I just think my life is easier without the phone, because I don't have to worry about all those other things my friends are worrying about. And I think both of those things are true, so simplicity and, I don't know, ease of life. And I don't know, I'm, I'm glad. I, I grew up completely analog. And then as soon as I turned 18, I was one of the first people on the internet. Back when the internet was a BBS, which was a localized bulletin board of 300 people, right? So I was very tech savvy at the age of 18, but I grew up with nothing. And it really was beautiful. And um, as much as I can preserve that for my kids, I will. And as much as I think people can preserve that for themselves, I think that's important. My most, I always think it's interesting that If you ask me to name my five most impressive friends, all five of them have never been on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter once in their lives. They have no social media presence whatsoever, and they're the five most successful human beings I know. I think there's something to be said about that. Now, I am using social media. I'm an author, and I run a business, and I use social media to extract value for my business and to attract an audience. Um, but the funny thing about social media for me is I'm never on it in that I'm using it to look at other stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, my wife will say, oh, did you know Kayla had a baby? And I say, no, how would I know? And she said, well, it was on Facebook. And I said, honey, I go on Facebook, I put my thing on Facebook, and then I walk away from Facebook, <laughs> right? So I'm not like going on Facebook and going, what's everybody else doing? I'm, I'm going on Facebook and saying, here's a thought I had, goodbye. And then I walk away till the next day. And the next day I come on and go, here's another thought I had, goodbye. And so, you know, I'm not opposed to any of these things when they're done with purpose and intent. The problem is nobody does it with purpose and intent. The yeah. problem is, is that every single time we have a moment of downtime, we instantly turn to the thing that is simplest to fill our time, which is the thing in our pocket. And we often open up a application that makes us feel worse about ourselves when we're done looking at it so it doesn't help us in any way anyway so we purpose and intent is what we have to use when we're approaching all of these things including life
1: I think that last thing you said is is so important to to hone in on i I'm of the belief it's very hard to do something wrong in awareness like if you're if you're fully and truly aware as you're going throughout life like you'll catch yourself as you start diving into that YouTube rabbit hole <laughs> or, yeah. that, or that social media rabbit hole And I think like you said, like I also use social media, but I think there's such a difference between using it intentionally and using it unconsciously because like you, um, I've actually reached out for most of the podcast guests that I that I have on here, I've reached out to a Twitter message, but I literally never go through Twitter and just like scroll randomly. It's pretty much all just to message other creators. I'd be I'd be interested to hear um, with you. I'm I'm interested in the transition from that analog to digital phase, which you've described has happened to you because you grew up with such analog tools. And now it's a digital age. How have you continued outside of what we've already talked about to try and keep that intentionality and awareness with the digital tools of today so that you don't become consumed?
0: Well, I just, I guess I think of them as tools. And I think most people don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that there's content creators and content consumers in the world where ideally we're going to be a little bit of both. Most people are not. Most people spend their lives consuming the content of other people. Mm. Um, and so I often talk to students and, and and adults. Even I say you can either spend your life looking at other things that people made, or you can spend time making stuff for other people, and being very purposeful about looking at the stuff that people make. Meaning, I love to watch a movie. I love to read a book. You know, if someone sends me a great talk on YouTube, I'd be happy to watch it. That's fantastic. But um, it's a tool, and it's not just a time occupier, which is what most people use all these things for. It's, I'm going to occupy my time and I'm going to get lots of attention, or I think I'm going to get lots of attention. Really, it's meaningless intention. You know, your best Instagram photo response that you've ever received back in 2017 is completely forgotten by everyone, including you, right? You had a great day, like 93 people liked my photo and 17 people said nice things. And it's so meaningless. It's gone, right? As opposed to learning to play the ukulele or learning to speak a new language or growing a garden in your backyard or making a movie on your iPhone or going for a walk down a path you've never walked down before, right? So when I think about all the digital tools in the world, I just think of them as tools and not means of occupying my time or um, sort of valorizing my life in some way to garner attention, You know, I want attention. And the way I get attention is I write books and I stand on stages and connect with people and I record podcasts that reach other people in the world. And, and I, sit with my son and I watch The Simpsons and pause it every four <laughs> seconds to explain to him who Richard Nixon is and why that joke was funny. You know, those are the ways that I use these tools. And I think if we think of them as tools, that's the best way to do it.
1: Yeah. You know, it reminds me of um, something you said earlier about like your wife going on Facebook and and saying like, oh, did you hear that this this person had a baby? I think one of the things that you're touching upon is one of the reasons it's not painful to, to miss out on things like that is if It's so much more meaningful if that person tells you about having the baby in person or through a call, where she she they can tell a a story if they wanted to. Because ultimately, like just seeing an isolated message on some digital platform, like this person has had a child. It's like okay,
0: (laughs) yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. I've had moments where people say, I'll say like, "Oh my god, you have a baby," and they're like, "The baby's six months old." I'm like, "You didn't tell me had a baby," and they'll say like, "Well, I put it on Instagram," and I said. I'd say like, well, so you just put it out to the world and you're expecting me to stumble upon it, you know, which is essentially what you're doing. If you're putting important information on the world, important information about your world on social media, you're just telling the entire planet Mm -hmm. and hoping the important people stumble upon it. So, so yeah, it's nice to actually do it the old fashioned way. I write letters, for example, I write, um. I try to write 100 physical letters every year and put them in the mail with a stamp and everything. Last year, I did 222. It was the most letters I'd ever written in a year. The, the joy and the connection that I get from people when they get a letter from me and then they call me, they go, you sent me a letter? I said, yeah, I was thinking about you. So I wrote some stuff down and I put it in the mail. And they're so happy. Like that's me holding on to the analog world, which is yeah. an email's fine, but how often do we get a letter? You know, I write letters to my students all the time. When they get the first letter, they come to school, they go, you wrote me a letter. <laughs> (laughs) I said, I know I wrote you a letter. They're like, why are you writing me a letter? You see me every day. I said, well, I want to put it on paper. Because when it's on paper, there's some permanence and I want you to permanently know how I feel about you. Now maybe you'll throw it away and maybe you won't, but I want you to at least have the option to forever remember how I felt about you on this day. And the kids never throw the letters away. The parents are like, My God, you've sent my kid four letters. They're on the refrigerator. I don't think they're ever gonna come down. Um, that is better than putting up a Facebook message that says, My student is cute, you know, or mm-hmm. look what my kid did. I just I'm trying to hold on to that stuff and I think we should.
1: Yeah. I think what you're saying is it's really hitting on uh, this, this idea that time is one of the most valuable things that you can give someone. Because, like, time is the only thing that we universally have only 24 hours of in a day. So that, that act of, like, writing a physical letter, going to the mail... Stamping it means so much more than putting up uh, a Facebook post like about some a uh, baby that you've had, um, or just emailing them, which is still really nice, but it's not the
0: same. It's not yeah. the same as writing like a physical letter and giving it out. Right, it's not even close. No, it means a lot to people when you. um It's the same thing as sitting next to someone in an airplane and asking them about their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes people don't want to talk, and that's fine. But when they do, because they haven't had a chance the same thing. It's just, I'm willing to give you some time so I can learn a little bit more about you and the world and maybe myself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the amazing things that have happened as a result of me writing letters to people. It's just been astounding. So mm-hmm. the meaningful connective moments that we have with people, will generate value beyond your imagination.
1: Yeah, I think one of the the reasons that people, even if they know the power of telling these stories and of being more intentional in their lives, that they don't do it is they don't make time for it, which I know is something you talk a lot about in your book, um, Some days Today. So- I wanted to hear uh, what, what are some things that people can do in their lives right now to carve out and make time for
0: starting to develop this storytelling lens in their life? Well, I mean... That's tricky. I think when it comes to storytelling, carving out that lens, it's an all the time thing. Mm -hmm. It's just a constant awareness. It's the uh, allowing yourself to pause for a moment. You know, I think one of the most valuable things we can do to sort of, I guess, carve out a little bit of time in our day is... I tell people to make a list of all the things you can do in 10 minutes because most of the time our days are filled with a multitude of 10-minute segments that are not filled with something. We're waiting, you know. we're paused. We have 10 minutes or five minutes even to kill. And that's the worst way to describe it is 10 minutes to kill because 10 minutes are precious, believe me. When you're at the end of your life or you believe you're at the end of your life, 10 minutes is an eternity. And if we think of it that way, we'll be better with the way we use our time. So if you make a list of all the things you can do in 10 minutes, instead of taking the phone out of your pocket or killing 10 minutes, and maybe one of those things you do is you sit down and you go, all right, let me think about my day. Let me think about what what's going on in my head. Have I had a new thought today that I've never had before? Did someone say something to me? Um, but there's a lot of things you can get done in 10 minutes. You know, I always say like, I can empty a dishwasher in 10 minutes. I can fold half a load of laundry. I can read four pages of a book. I can revise a paragraph. I have a whole list of things I can do. So when my son's looking for his shoe, because both shoes are never in the same room. And we're waiting to go to bring them to Boy Scouts. And I know it's going to take him six minutes to find his shoes, put them on, get his hat and be ready to go. Instead of standing by the door staring at my phone, I say, all right, I got six minutes. What can I do? And sometimes it's, I'll revise the paragraph I just wrote for the next book. Sometimes it's, I'll empty half the dishwasher now so I can empty the other half later and get more time back. I have a book by my door. Right now it's, um, It's um, Groucho Marx quotes and stories by the door. I'll open the book and I'll start reading it. Rather than staring at my phone, I actually read a book by the door while waiting for my son. I have a whole list of things that I can do in 10 minutes. And so when we start to look at that time, those little precious moments in between as precious, then we can start to maybe sit down and reflect and say, what stories do I have from today? For me, that process is just constantly ongoing in my head at all times. And eventually I think that can happen for everybody.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like part of it is just developing that constant awareness throughout the day. But another part of it is just realizing yeah. that those six minutes that you have while your dad's going to the bathroom or something else is is happening is, is valuable time. You can be using doing something. And I yes. think like, especially for I know a lot of, of students uh, around my age, like the immediate response, even if it's 15 minutes, uh, is to just take out the phone and and get that instant gratification going on, on TikTok. But yeah. instead, like you just use that, um, asking the things that you were talking about, it adds up, it adds up.
0: Yes, it's amazing how people walk through life assuming there's a tomorrow. Because um, there will be a day when there's not a tomorrow. And for a lot of people, it's not in your 85th year, right? Mm-hmm. Buses hit people routinely. And so we either use our time wisely now, or we regret. The time we wasted later on. So, um, yeah, if you want to be a better storyteller and a more reflective person, use those moments to sit down and just, I always say, be curious about yourself and just say, why am I doing the things that I do? Reflect upon your day and say, what did I do and why did I do it? You know, and and what were my underlying motivations that I've never really considered before. And that's where we find stories and understanding and all of those things.
1: Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, some of the main things that we've talked about so far in regards to storytelling are like why tell stories, how to organize and find stories. Um, how to develop that like storytelling lens, how to make time to tell stories. But I think one thing that we haven't talked about, which might be blocking some people from telling stories in their lives is they just don't think that they're good storytellers. And I'd like to to hear from you uh, two questions. You can attack them any way that you'd like. The first is, how do you think that people in the next like five minutes, if they're listening to this, can become better storytellers? And then secondly, how can you over a long period of time become better at storytelling outside of just telling more stories, whether that's like reading novels and analyzing them or like watching movies or hearing other people's stories, anything.
0: Okay. Okay. I'll give you two things. So to become a better storyteller right now, open every single story you ever tell for the rest of your life with two things. Location and action. Tell people where you are and be doing something. Most people don't start stories this way. When we open with location, we activate imagination. If I say I'm standing on a beach, you now can see me on a beach. If I say I'm standing in the kitchen, you can now see me in a kitchen. I activate imagination through location because location is automatically imbued with a thousand adjectives. And almost always the specificity of the beach or the kitchen is irrelevant to the story. So put me in your kitchen. Put me on your favorite beach. Perfectly great for me. And then we start with action, which is a signal to the audience that I'm actually telling you a story, right? I'm not starting my story with, let me tell you a little bit about my grandmother, right? That's not a story. That's an essay about your grandmother, which no one has ever wanted. Um, <laughs> you might tell me something about your grandmother through the course of the story, but that's not the way to begin a story. We can, If we start with location and action, we grab attention immediately, and that's important. So if you just do that, you'll be a better storyteller. Over the long term, pay attention to movies, because stories are essentially movies we put in the minds of our audience. So pay attention to a movie. When I was watching a movie last night with my family, I asked myself things like this. Oh, they surprised me. How did they surprise me? Oh, that was funny. Why did I laugh? What is the arc of this movie? At the beginning of the movie, the character was this. How were they changed at the end of the movie? Oh, they were like this. How did that happen? So ask yourself questions like that while you're watching movies. I always, whenever I'm surprised, whenever I laugh, whenever I find myself in suspense, I ask myself, how did they do that? Mm. And if you do it long enough, you'll start to go, oh, they kept me in suspense by telling me most of the things I needed to know, but not one thing. Mm. So suspense is holding something back. Oh they surprised me because they set something up half an hour ago by teaching me something and then they upended it 30 minutes later that surprised me oh that's a way to surprise right how did they make me laugh oh they used nostalgia that's interesting nostalgia is always funny so pay attention to movies and how movies move you emotionally. And then you'll start to find ways to do the same in the stories that you tell.
1: I think that's such great advice. I, I remember I was driving back home after watching the most recent Avatar movie with my brother. As we were driving, he turns around and he asked me like, so what'd you think of the movie? And I was like, I I didn't really like it that much. And he was like, "But but the message, it was so good. Like, you know, like love your family and like the message is it's great and i was like yeah the message was good that's great but the message is not all that matters it's the the package that it's given and and the problem i had with the movie was that there was there was no surprise there was no like question as I was watching it as to what was going to happen. It was like watching a Marvel movie. Like I knew the entire time the hero was going to win. I knew knew it was going to happen every single scene. So the message was great. It was awesome. But the way it was told was not engaging. And I think that's really what what you were saying with like the grandma thing like you can you can tell everything uh about your grandma in an essay, and like it could have some really, really good messages, but no one wants to listen to that <laughs> no. they want they want to hear that message told in an engaging way, and that yeah. is what you can do with stories
0: right so pay attention to movies that'll be very helpful yeah, yeah.
1: <clears throat> i wrapping up would like to ask something that uh I ask all of the the people on my, my podcast. And that is, what are three books that have resonated with you most?
0: All right. So Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. Mm-hmm. It's the best teaching and storytelling book there is. Um, it's fantastic. It's five ways to, to make messages memorable. So um, every teacher should read it. Every storyteller should read it. Made to Stick. Um, Stephen King's On Writing mm. is the best writing book there is, both in terms of here's some practical advice, as well as here's what the life of a writer really looks like. And so that book saved me when I was getting ready to quit on writing and thinking I couldn't do it. That book rescued me and convinced me I could be a writer. And then Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions. um, He breaks every rule there is in writing. And when I read that book, he's a character in the book as himself actually at one point and you read a book like that and you realize there are no rules you get to do whatever you want and that freedom that understanding that that there is there is no one imposing laws on my work that freedom that the book afforded me was extraordinary so those three books and they're all great they're all you should read all of them multiple times I have. So, yeah. Oh,
1: thank you. I, I'm definitely going to read Make It, uh, make it Stick. <laughs> okay. yeah, it's great. Yeah. Uh, and then the the last thing, um, for anyone listening, if they wanted to find you outside of the podcast, where could they
0: go? Oh, they could just go to MatthewDix.com. Um, everything basically is there. They can also go to StoryworthyMD.com. That's where um, I do a lot of my storytelling teaching and things like that. If they want to know more about homework for life, there's a TED talk on it. If you just Google the phrase homework for life, my TED talk will come up and I'll give you a lot more explanation and description on how to follow that process.